Next thing is, is the psalm for us this morning. So if you're visiting this morning, you're catching us in uh, about a month into a series that's going to carry us through the end of the year, a series in a book of the Bible known as the Psalms. It's a collection of 150 poems that were put together by Israel, that poems that, that they used to use in their worship of God at the temple and in their worship of God as individuals in, in their private lives. Uh, psalms, poems that stretch over uh, all sorts of human experiences that were put together through uh, century after century of Israel's experience in trusting God and looking to him and seeing him prove true in the, in the needs that they had. And what we're trying to do with this series, which is barely going to scratch the surface on what this collection includes, what we're trying to do with it is to learn what's there, to try to pick psalms that illustrate groups of psalms that are found in the collection so that when we come across other ones that fit that model we kind of know what to do with them we've learned some skills about how to understand them and um, so that that's that's what's guiding what psalms we're choosing out of the 150 we could choose from then we come to this week looking at psalm 32 and this psalm in particular defies the categories that we've been talking about it is a versatile little psalm beautiful powerful and versatile crosses genres when I was a kid I was really into Bo Jackson being from Alabama where he's from and an Auburn fan where he played Bo Jackson famously was a total stud both at football and at baseball I had a big poster of him up on my wall when I was a kid and it was one of those Bo nose posters and he had the he had the football pads on and then he had the uh he had the baseball bat sort of draped over his shoulder like this and it said, Bo knows, because Bo knows. I think of this psalm as kind of the Bo Jackson of psalms at one level, because it's crossing lots of the different categories we've talked about. Psalm 32 is sort of a psalm known as a penitential psalm. There's several psalms in this psalm that are about confession of sin, people being honest before God, that they are not what they should have been, that they have no hope apart from God's mercy to them. It fits that category, sort of. It's also sort of a thanksgiving psalm. We looked at one of those a couple weeks ago. Thanksgiving psalms start with some sort of crisis that the, that the person writing was in. Then that person cries out to God for help, for deliverance. And then the psalm is celebrating that God heard him when he cried out. And that's what this psalm does. It starts with crisis and a cry to God that God hears. It's sort of like a Thanksgiving psalm. It's also sort of like a wisdom psalm. Wisdom psalms usually lay out two different ways to go. You could choose this route, here's where you can expect it to lead you. You could choose this route, you can expect it to go this way. This psalm does that. It lays out two ways to be, two ways to respond to your sin, and two different results, depending on which way you choose to go. This is a versatile psalm, but from beginning to end, it is a psalm on the power and the fruit of honest confession of sin. I want you to think of this psalm as a song that has two verses to it. The first verse lays out why confession matters so much, why it's important. And the second lays out how to do it well. And we're going to look for just a few minutes this morning at each one of those verses. I want to begin by reading the whole psalm together. We read a little bit of it earlier before we celebrated communion together. I want to read the whole thing now. And I'm going to ask you, please, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Psalm 32. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it won't stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. You can be seated. I mentioned there's two verses to this psalm. One of them lays out why confession is so important. The second one lays out how to do it well. And that's where we're going to go this morning. I want to start with what I'm calling the basis of confession. That's the first verse. And then the path to confession will be the second verse. The first, the first verse of the psalm, this first stanza, if you will, it assumes that sin is a problem for everybody. It doesn't make a case for it. it doesn't try to, to justify it or convince you that sin's a problem. It just assumes that sin's a problem for everybody and offers two different options, two different ways you could deal with it. Contrast between these two different options are, are what give us the basis for confession. It's why, why confession of sin is so important and so life-giving despite the risks that we feel at having our true selves known. I mean, let, me, let me walk you through these two options that the psalm gives us in the first five verses. Here's option number one. This comes out in the first two verses. This is the opening of the psalm. Sounds a lot, starts a lot like the first psalm in the whole collection. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And we've seen a psalm open with a, a promise of blessing before. That psalm, Psalm 1, opened up with a blessing. Or happy is the man who, who walks in the way God has set out, not in the way of the wicked. This one, I think, ups the ante and tells you, blessed is the one not who perfectly walked in the way of the righteous, not in the one who perfectly avoided the way of the wicked, but blessed is the one who, even though they walked in the way of the wicked, is now forgiven by the mercy of God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's three ways of saying the same thing. Who's the happy person? Who is blessed? Not the innocent. Not the perfectly obedient. Not the ones who are, who are winning at life. The happy are those who've had their sins forgiven. It's a word that literally means lifted up and carried away. Imagine yourself moving into a new house, loaded down with boxes that were a little heavier than you thought they were when you first loaded them down on your arms. Imagine a friend comes to you at just the right time and picks them up and carries them away from you. And that is the image that we're given here with transgression is forgiven. A burden too great to carry, lifted and carried by somebody else whose sin is covered. Imagine 
Imagine you're, you're at dinner with a friend and you've bought some food and that ticket comes and the friend grabs it. I got it covered. It's not for you to pay. I'll take care of it. Whose sin is covered and against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Imagine yourself coming out from a lunch where you took a risk and parked in a park happy lot next to the restaurant and went five minutes too long and they nabbed you with one of those tickets that cost like 85 bucks for five minutes too long and imagine yourself appealing to the to the person who owns those those lots and them deciding you know what I'm not going to count this against you yes you earned it this one's not going to count and there you get a little taste of what this psalm is celebrating. The happy person is not the innocent one. The happy person is the one whom God decides to treat as innocent. The happy person is the forgiven person, the redeemed person, the person given a new story, a life rewritten by God's love and grace. That's option one. That's one thing you can do with your sin. You can acknowledge it and be forgiven for it. At the very end of verse 2, I wonder if you notice this line. The happy person, the blessed person, is one in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's a telling phrase. That sets up another way you can respond to your sin. So, so he's telling us the happy person is one who's not trying to hide anymore. Not trying to hide from God. Not trying to hide from herself. Not trying to hide from others. This is a person who knows she's who she is on her own. She knows what she's done. She's finished trying to cover it up or pretend like it's not a problem. That kind of honesty was not always true of David. Verses 3 and 4 lay out another way you can respond to your sin, one that David learned from experience. You might ask him, I think it would be a reasonable question to ask of David, how do you know that you can be happy if you're honest about your sin? How do you know that God will see me as I am and not reject me? How do you know that he can lift my burden from me and give me a life that's free? And David would answer us, I know because I've been there. For a long time, he lived with option two. Look at verses three and four with me. They take us from this big sweeping general statement about God and all people anywhere into the very personal experience of this man writing this psalm. How do you know that confession leads to happiness rather than more pain? For, verse 3 says, drawing this, laying the foundation for what he said in the first two verses, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning. All day long. Describes himself as zapped by hiding his sin. Just like your, your strength gets zapped on a hot day when you haven't had water. He knows that happiness exists where you're forgiven. Because he knows what it is to try to pretend like you don't need forgiveness in the first place. He knows that's no path to anyone's happiness. He thought by keeping silent he might save his life. But it was actually killing him. Eating him away from the inside. He thought of covering his own sin as a kind of protection. Like you might cover yourself in a storm 
and a nice sturdy house. But in reality, the covering he had put over his sin was more like a greenhouse effect on the poison that was the sin inside of him. It was creating a context where that sin was thriving and growing and spreading and eating him away. The covering wasn't protecting him. It was killing him. Does that sound familiar? Verse 5 resolves the story and points us to why he's so confident about happiness through forgiveness. Verse 5 shows us the end of his experience. Finally, he gets to the point where he just can't hide anymore. He's not going to do it anymore. I acknowledge my sin to you. I couldn't keep it covered anymore. I acknowledge my sin to you and didn't cover it. I said, I'll confess. And what he found was a God who forgives. Why should you confess your sin? What is the basis for confession? Because if you stop trying to cover your sin, God will cover it for you. Now I want to ask you two questions before we move to the next verse. Two questions. Here's the first one. I don't want you to answer it too quick, but to really sit with it. Think about it. Pray over it. Friend, are, are you covering your sin? There's lots of ways you might do it and not realize you're doing it. You might cover your sin by telling yourself that you don't really have a problem. That the last time it happened was the last time. That there's no need to confess something that's not still there, as if the past really were past. Friend, if if that's how you're justifying what you're hiding, then to, to borrow David's words, that is deceit in your spirit. You're only putting up the sort of cover of darkness in which you are guaranteed to fall over and over and over again. You might cover your sin without realizing it by surrounding yourself with people who only tell you that you haven't done anything wrong. Maybe you're having relationship trouble with somebody else and you you vent it and all the person that you're venting to says is that you did right. That those other folks don't know. I can't imagine what that person's thinking. I mean, what in the, where in the world did they get off and just stir up the trouble that you're already feeling? You need to be careful if that's who's in your ear. Because those sorts of affirmations are rarely ever true. It's a lot more like flattery than genuine comfort, however well intentioned it might be. You don't need people who are going to reinforce the perspective you already have because if you're like me you're really good at doing that on your own what you need are people who are willing to tell you what's true to help you see what you don't see or can't see about yourself don't cover your sin through getting more backup on your side or you, you might cover your sin by just deflecting deflecting responsibility for it you might deflect by by blaming it on something that you experienced in your past by some person who hurt you, the effect of something done to you, the product of a difficult season that you're finding yourself in right now. And you know what, friends? There might be some truth in all of that. You might not be wrong about the factors that are affecting your choices. But deflection is not the path to healing. 
what might feel to you, remember David's experience, what might feel to you like a kind of armor that's protecting you from shots that are coming your way may actually be more like a greenhouse that's fostering the growth inside you of what is eating at you. So David is calling us to look for ways, proactively look for ways to claim responsibility for ourselves. Look at what David did. All through verses three and four, or rather through verse five, David is emphasizing his own sin. He's not talking about sin in general anymore. He uses the same different words for sin that he used in verses one and two, sin and transgression and iniquity. Only now in verse five, he's owning them. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. First question for you to think about is are you covering your own sin? And here's a second one before we move on. What is holding you back from confession? Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. If that's true, confession might feel like a devastating threat to you. Like a lowering of defenses that are, that are your only hope for survival. And, and, and friends, so long as you choose to define yourself by what you've done, you're not wrong. Confession is a lowering of a defense that you're depending on without other hope. But the message of the gospel is that that God has the power and the willingness to redefine who you are. David is telling you what you can expect from God if you're willing to be honest about yourself. He's telling you, you don't have to clean up your act before you come to him. You don't have to make one change to your life before God will love and forgive you. He is entirely committed to the uneven exchange, to personally paying the costs that forgiveness always requires. He offers his life for yours, his righteousness for your guilt, his beauty for your ugliness, his shining robes for your filthy rags. And as one of our favorite songs here says, the only fitness that he requires is that you see your need of him. All you've got to do is realize that there's a drink of water there for a weary, thirsty soul for the taking if you're willing to acknowledge your thirst. If you're a Christian this morning, you might be held back by hidden sins too, afraid to confess, and you might be even more afraid as a Christian than you were before you were a Christian because now the expectations that other people have for you are different than they were before. You don't want to let people down. Maybe you're afraid to be exposed as a fraud. Maybe you're held back from confession by fear of something you could lose. That you might lose your reputation or your standing among your friends or your job or your family. Maybe, maybe friend, you don't see confession this morning as an option for you. Believe this this psalm is here to reframe for you what's at stake. If you're holding back from confession because you're afraid of what you will lose, then what you need to see from David's experience is that, friend, you are losing your life already. 
you can't have it all. You can't hold on to whatever you're hiding and also experience joy in whatever you're trying to protect by your hiding. It doesn't work like that. What you're afraid of losing is as good as lost to you already so long as you hide. The psalmist is promising you that that you, that you can come at this question of confession, of whether it's right for you to confess, of whether you can afford to confess, not by thinking about what you'll lose, but by seeing what you stand to gain through honesty. The, the psalm begins by reminding you, you can be forgiven. The only thing holding you back from happiness is confession that you haven't made yet. And he ends in the same place. If you skip down to the bottom... He's reminding you, look, you're focused on what you might lose. You don't realize you're heaping sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, he says in verse 10. As long as you hide, you're making things worse for yourself. But the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds anyone who trusts in him. Be glad in the Lord, verse 11 says. Rejoice. You want to be happy? You need to confess. This isn't a promise that there won't be consequences, that there won't be pain in those you've hurt, and through them, pain in you too. But it is a promise, friend. It is a promise that you will find forgiveness, peace with God, and therefore gladness, genuine gladness. It might be hard for you to believe, but David found it to be true. I've found it to be true and I have seen it prove true in the lives of many others in this church. Come into the light. Come today into the light. You are safe here with your friends and you will not be turned away by God or by us. That's the basis for confession. You can try to cover your sins or you can let God cover them for you. So confess. Why in the world would you not confess? The remaining verses point towards the path to confession. And I do want to spend a few minutes here to make sure you see how to get there. Because in verse 6, David's drawn a conclusion. He's just laid out why you should confess. There's life in it, happiness, gladness. Then in verse 6, he says, Therefore... Because this is true, because this confession is the path to to, to gladness and freedom, therefore, the path to confession. I want to help you see what's here in this second verse, second verse of the song, the sixth verse uh, of of Psalm 32. Two lanes to the path of confession I want to help you see here. Here's the first one in verse 6. I'm calling this one the vertical lane. You start by crying out to God. Verse 5 says, look, I cried out to him and he heard me. Verse 6, therefore, cry out to him. Do it now. Do it before it's too late. Do it now when, you, when, when he can be reached at a time when he can be found. Right now, before it's too late, cry out to God and he will hear you too. It's a call to be honest with him about yourself and to ask him for forgiveness. And David knew from experience that, that God will always hear those who come to him. That every sin, no matter how badly it hurts someone else, friend, it is first and foremost a sin against God. 
And there is no peace with anyone else that doesn't begin with peace with God. Not any genuine or lasting peace. So it has to start here. You have to begin by recognizing what's wrong about me is that I have offended the God who made me by rejecting his ways, by treating him as if he's not trustworthy or satisfying, by acting as if I would be better off on my own. I have to own that, take responsibility for that and cry out to him to treat me as if I were holy when I'm not. To cry out to God now while there's time. And what you'll find if you do, verse seven, or verse six and seven, is that in the rush of great waters, the waters will not reach him. Here I think David's talking about the one who cries out. You cry out to God, and the rush of waters is often emphasized like uh, uh, suffering, sorrow, the chaos of life, always often pictured by water in these, in these ancient times. That rushing water is coming, but it won't reach you. Why? Verse 7, because God is a hiding place for you. God preserves you from trouble. God surrounds you with shouts of deliverance. It's a promise, as one person put it, you can go from hiding from God to hiding in God. And it starts by being honest with him. That's the vertical lane of confession. Now I want you to see in these next verses that there's also what you might call a horizontal lane, a a, a path to confession that involves one another. I think a lot of times we can can overemphasize the personal relationship we have with God directly. It's beautiful and important, but it isn't the the only aspect of what it is to be God's people. God always saves his people into a people that shape life together, that involves one another. And the psalmist is pointing there in verses eight and nine about how the community comes around the person who confesses, that the, how the community helps us know how to confess and what to confess and how we're supposed to both give that kind of care to other people and receive it humbly from other people. That comes out in verses 8 and 9. Verses eight is, verse 8 is about how to give correction to somebody else, how to pay enough attention to somebody else to help them see what they may not see about themselves. And then verse 9 is about how to receive that kind of correction. I want, to, I want to make sure that you see both this, this profile of, from David of, of how to care for other people who, who may not see what they need to confess and then how to seek that kind of care from others. Verse 8 is, is about the responsibility that God's people have to help others see and confess sin. So David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Some people have, have thought of this as God's words, that God's voice takes over here. Uh, I, I'm with the group of uh, folks who think that actually it's still the psalmist speaking. He's speaking everywhere else in the psalm. God doesn't speak anywhere else. It would just come out of nowhere if this is God speaking and it goes right back to the psalmist speaking again. I believe this is David still talking, saying, now that I have learned something from experience about what God will be for those who confess their sin to him, I'm gonna teach other people to confess like I did. David makes almost the same point in another one of the confession psalms in Psalm 51. David is pouring out his soul. He's being honest with God about his sin. And then at the end of that psalm, he says, I'm going to teach transgressors your way. I'm going to help other people who've sinned like I have to be honest about their sin and get the forgiveness that I've had. I think that's what he's saying here. I want you to notice something about who this guy is who's given this kind of care. And this is the kind of care you want, the kind of person you want to seek care from, and it's the kind of person you want to be in the lives of your friends. 
person giving care here, helping them to, to see God's ways and to confess their own sin, is first of all a person who, ha- who knows from experience. Not a person who stands on some sort of higher plane ab- above the fray of wickedness and sin and iniquity, all those words that David piled up. And, and the one who teaches others, teaches them from experience as a fellow traveler who knows that they are just as sinful as anyone else they might try to help. So in the community of faith, in the local church, one of the foundational things about our life together is that all of us agree that we are sinful and beyond hope apart from Jesus. That means I got no leg up on anybody else. And when I try to help someone else see something they may not see about themselves, I do it not as the master expert who's figured anything out, but as a fellow traveler who's learned the hard way that that sin is in all of us and that God will hear us when we call out to him. It's got to be given from someone who gets they don't stand above anyone else. And then it's also got to be given from someone who pays close attention. So verse 8 says, David says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Not going to treat you just as some sort of member of a set. I'm going to know you. I'm going to pay attention to your life. I'm going to know the circumstances that you're living with. I'm not going to just speak into something I don't understand. I'm going to treat you like an individual, like someone who's dignified and, 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 and important. I'm going, to, I'm going to know you and interact with you towards confession as one who is for you, who's proven that. Friends, that's what you're looking for. That's what you want to be for your friends here in our church, and that's what you want to seek. That's who you want to seek out in your life. Someone who knows from experience that God saves sinners and who pays careful attention to your life. It's one of the reasons we talk so much about church membership in our church. You may have seen the announcement for a members meeting we have this evening. Uh, Those who who formally join our church among the many other faithful churches you could join in Nashville, one of the things we're saying when we join our church is that we are going to give this kind of care to each other. We are making promises to pay attention to each other's lives. To, to live open lives in front of one another and not to turn away from what we see in each other just because it would be more convenient, less messy to do that. We're promising that we all get our desperate need for Jesus. No one here is above anyone else and all of us only get what we need when we do this together. If you haven't ever joined a church or considered membership in a church, we'd love the chance to talk to you about our our membership covenant, the promises we make to each other to give this sort of care. Verse 8 is about what kind of care we give. Verse 9 is about how to lean into it. The path of confession involves the community. We have to help each other see things we may not see so that we can confess them. And then we have to embrace that role in uh, for other people in our lives david is, is saying look look i'm trying to help you here don't be like a horse or a mule without any understanding got to be curbed with bit and bridle or it won't stay near you don't make it hard for me to help you trust us lean into what we want to offer you i think the image speaks for itself a horse is not going anywhere that you don't tell them to go that you don't force them to go a mule even more they do what they want when they want david is calling us to the kind of humility that has nothing to protect and nothing to hide the kind of humility that only comes when you trust jesus is for you that you have no image of yourself of your own that will stand the test of time so you may as well stop projecting one you might as well be open to whatever anyone might see about you and invite them to help you 
So, friends, we want to be easy to correct, basically. We want to invite it. We want to welcome it. We want to ask good questions. We want to see what, uh, what the person is saying, even if they're wrong. We don't want to only follow or listen when, for some reason, we're compelled to do that. So I wonder, do you, are you easy to correct? Do your friends know that you want to be corrected? You might consider inviting them to correct you because it's a higher burden on them to just force the correction, <laughs> to force something they see about you without an invitation. They're going to wait longer. They're going to wait till more stuff piles up before they do that. That's not good for you. You want to see what they see when they see it. So invite them to go ahead and do it. Make it easy on them. And don't make them say the things that they need to say in just the right way, looking for some sort of procedural technicality to sort of dodge the blow. You guys ever do that or is that just me? A buddy of mine uh, uh, last week reminded me of this story about John Adams who lost his first major case on a technicality because even though the case had been ruled in his favor on his paperwork, he had forgotten to write the county in which the case was being heard. So he lost, even though he should have won. I think a lot of times when we're on the receiving end of somebody else's correction, we're looking for those technicalities too. They might be right about everything they say, but you know, you said it like this and you shouldn't have said it like that. So, I mean, Honestly, and, and there's also this thing about you too that you know I could point out if I wanted to. So, so honest, that just eliminates anything that might be true in what you said. Let's don't treat each other like that. Let's try to look for what we can get, not what we can't get from each other. Because friends, we have no reason to dodge, no reason to deflect, no reason to run, redirect or to run away. Remember, you can cover your own sin and try to protect yourself or you can let God cover it for you and let him protect you. Those are your options. And when you let God cover your sin, when you let him protect you, it is no threat to you to be seen. When he protects you, what reason do you have for fear? Father, we are more afraid than we should be of being seen and known. So we ask you by the power of your word this morning, by your spirit working in us, to give us confidence in Jesus that will make us able to live open and happy lives with each other. This must be your work. We pray to you to do it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.